heavily, I'm a clown. What is up, everybody? Hope you all are doing fantastic, enjoying the beautiful weather. At least I know it's beautiful weather here down in Florida. This is the first official BEC in a while, other than the weekly live stream that Ben and I have been doing. Aviv reached out to me and wanted to have a conversation, and I know you guys loved Aviv last time. I know I enjoyed talking to him. He's a really smart dude, so this is a cool conversation. You guys are not going to want to miss this one. I'm not going to really preface it too much. Let's just jump right into it after we hear about our sponsor, River. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappened1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Aviv, how the heck are you doing, man? It's been a while since we talked. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's what a year and a half, like two years. I think. I think so. Yeah, and last time I was actually at my office, right? Yeah, so you I was were. like in a, yeah. in a little like a like a white cubby phone booth. Yeah. Um and uh, uh, on my laptop, and now I've uh, um, I'm I'm at home and I've got a green screen, so this is not actually my office. It's just uh, oh, you shouldn't have told us that. You just ruined the illusion. I mean, actually, this is all my office. These those are thousand uh, dollar books. Each book is worth a thousand dollars. Wow, uh, it's real mahogany, you wow. know. And uh, <laughs> is that pieces of eight I see up there. Wow, that, yeah, phenomenal. amazing. Yeah, um, but no, uh, yeah. So I'm just uh, uh, at my place. I've got a, a little green curtain, and uh, Zoom does really well for that. So I'm I'm pretty stoked. Um, so yeah, a lot a lot has changed. I think. Uh, in this time. Um, well, let me ask you first, uh, Colin, like what's, uh, what's the biggest thing that you find that, that that's changed for you in your life in the last couple of years? Oh man, it's hard to start. Um, I don't want to get too into my personal life, but at the moment I'm in the process of completely trying to change gears professionally and move into software development full-time. So I'm taking, um, you know, like in addition to my normal job, I'm doing coding classes at night and I expect probably sometime in the next six months or so to be able to transition into working full-time in software. So I'm super excited about that. What about you? Uh, well, I, I'm, I'm actually still at the same company that I was when I was, when we talked last time, but you know, it's interesting because I remember last time we talked, you said you wanted to transition into software development and you were anxious about like how to approach it and like what class to take. And uh, it's pretty cool. Cause like in two years, you've, you've come pro- probably quite a long way. If you're only six months from being able to transition. That's, uh, yeah. that's dope. Yeah. Cause I remember you saying that, um, that you were, uh, uh, looking at different courses. You didn't know what exactly you wanted to do that. You were, you had a full-time job like elsewhere that wasn't software. And, um, and I remember probably giving you some like very, uh, plain advice, like yeah. you can do it or whatever, but you actually did it. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, almost there. Well, let's hope anyway, I still have yeah. no idea what I'm doing in software though, but I get the feeling even the experts say that. Yes. And that's actually a big thing about uh, starting a career, I think, is that um, it's very important to get over the paranoia that you don't know what you're doing, because the reality is, is that people who have been doing it for a while also 
don't know what they're doing. Um, they're just better at dealing with that than you are. The fact that they don't know. That makes sense. And yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I definitely suffered from a lot of um, um, imposter syndrome at work where you keep saying to yourself, you know, I shouldn't have this job. Like there's a billion people in this planet that know more than I know. Um, I don't know anything about this. I don't know anything about that. But the, the truth is, is that, you know, you just fit, you just do your best. And um, that's what a lot of people are doing. Um, yeah, that's dope. Uh, do you know where you would like to work? I mean, dream job. River hires me tomorrow. And I get okay. hooked up with them. Um, I've actually talked with uh, Alex about that a little bit. And they mostly hire local. And I was like, yeah, but would you consider taking on a remote employee and he's like well maybe if it was the right person which basically what he's saying is well you better you better make it worth my time if you think i'm gonna hire you remotely so i'm like okay yeah well i'll get back to work um but like dream job i'd love to work for a bitcoin company but you know it, it doesn't have to be a bitcoin company i i love open source software uh especially like free open source software i, I think it's phenomenal but obviously the the business model around that is complicated um, yes, but I would love to work in something where I feel like I'm creating value and not necessarily just another employee number 1723 refactoring code block 17. You know what I mean? Right. No, I, I, I totally get that. And remind me, what is river again? Oh, Sorry, river I... is just a Bitcoin exchange. Sorry. They, they sponsor my show. So, um, oh, okay. I'm I mean, of course river, the of greatest them. Bitcoin exchange to ever, uh, exist. That's right. Yeah. Use uh, uh, river.com slash BEC and you'll get a, a week off. A good segue. It'd be excellent job. <laughs> yeah. I was just re using river the other day for the 800th time thinking, God, my life is infinitely better now that I'm using river. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, cool. Awesome. All right. Um, so yeah, Bitcoin company. Um, would you like to work on like low level Bitcoin script type stuff or high level like UI design um, backend work? Yeah. You know, I don't know. Um, is it, wait, all right. Yeah, no, I'll answer this question, but this interview is supposed to be about you, but it's yeah, okay. Sorry. No, 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 you're good, man. Um, I, I love it actually. I appreciate it. Um, I I'm still kind of finding my feet in software. So like I personally don't enjoy front end that much. I find back end is more fulfilling because I like solving problems. I like thinking things through and like, there's a little bit of that in front end, I guess. And I haven't really interacted too much with like UX like UI UX side of front end, it's more so just like build something, make it look pretty. And I feel like I'd probably appreciate UX UI a little bit more, um, but I'm probably leaning towards back end and, and I really like data science. So, you know, if, if I can build my, um, I like digging through obscure data and trying to make connections and um, displaying it in ways that it's interesting. So, like if, you know, if I can break into data science too, that'd be something I'd be really interested in. Well, cool. Yeah, I feel like, um, you know, backend is more with dealing with like uh, um, with data and with problem solving and the front end is dealing with people. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're constantly trying to problem solve where people are part of the equation, whereas mm -hmm. with backend, it's just like this needs to go there. This needs to go there. So um, it's definitely more like of an engineering vibe to it, like you're playing mm -hmm. with Lego rather than the front end where you're constantly thinking, OK, well, the person would go like this or, or like that. And so you have to, you know. It's, it's, it's very much more human. And I think uh, a lot of us nerds want to get away from that and go to the yeah. back end where it's. Well, uh, and I, uh, I think like it's easy to take it for granted too, because you can have the best back end in the world, 
but if it's cumbersome or if it's you know bug or like if, if it's difficult to interact with like let's be honest most people aren't going to use it and then vice versa the opposite is true right like it can be the sleekest product in the world and you can hit all the right buttons and it does all the flashy stuff but if your back end is trash and the product doesn't do what it's designed to do um no one's going to use it that way either yeah and it's interesting because the this space feels like it has a lot of both it has a lot of kind of scammy fake you know really good front end nothing behind mm. the curtain and then it has like the wasabi wallet type people where mm -hmm. it's like just absolute magic is happening in the back end and uh and the front end is just a minefield of complicated you know like yeah. you know max hillebrand's like yeah this makes sense it's obvious why why is it, why would anyone say this is complicated this is so simple to use it's like max not everyone is you okay not right. everyone is a is a complete uh 100 you know nerd you know just constantly reading about everything and figuring it out so um yeah, there is definitely a balance uh, that you have to strike. Um, okay, so I guess, do, do you want to know about... Um, what have you been up to, man? Like, what, what have you been busy with the last two years? Because you asked about me. Yeah, um, the the big thing that we talked about last time was privacy in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, I made a case for Bitcoin having a fundamental value proposition as a last resort censorship-resistant vehicle um, for, like, personal autonomy. So... The way I, I look at it, and I've, I've refined this since a little bit, but I think I might have told you my thesis that, you know, you know, Bitcoin or cryptocurrency generally, like everything that I have found value in cryptocurrency has been censorship resistant financial instruments of last resort. That's mm -hmm. been my like kind of big thesis. Um, and privacy is a big part of censorship resistance. Uh, since then, I've sort of refined that and I, I make the case that you know, a lot of people in the States, I'm from Canada, but in the States, everyone's very aware of the first and second amendments to the constitution, like the bill of rights. So, you know, in the, uh, in the second amendment, you have the right to bear arms. Now, um, you know, my contention is the best argument for owning a gun is to protect the people against a tyrannical state. That's in my view is the best argument. Um, there are two other arguments, which is self-defense, also a very good argument. I think people should be able to protect themselves. And the third argument, which I think is also good, not as valuable as the first, which is I like guns. They're fun. I want to practice. I like to own a gun. I don't know why I can own skis, but not a gun. Like I just want to have a gun. Totally so um, the problem I find is that when we talk about tyrannical states and like actually defeating and laying a resistance against a government, I think the second amendment doesn't do enough. And I think it also has a lot of drawbacks. So, um, you know, and this is like an engineering problem, right? So it's not, as, it's not about politics or law or anything like that. It's just that guns, you know, there's no button on a gun that guarantees you're going to hit the person in the right place. Like you could miss, right. You know, guns are, are require a lot of learning. They happen to be expensive. There's, there's a lot of components around guns that aren't perfect. And the thing that I've found is better than the Second Amendment, or at least even more um, powerful against government, is tools of applied cryptography. Just anything that protects First Amendment rights to free speech um, have more power. So the, the free ability to talk to uh, each other, knowing that no one can intercept or block or uh, find out what you're saying, as well as the sending of money, in, in my view, is much more powerful than everyone having a gun. And, and I, I, I'll give you a scenario. So you, you imagine you have a society and the government starts to become fascist, right? If the government starts to become fascist and 
in government, they have to decide, do we A, take away everyone's guns or B, try to limit individuals from convening and discussing about how they hate government? You definitely want to get rid of the communication lines, because if you get rid of the communication lines, the free communication and, and, uh, and anonymous and secure and confident ability for people to talk about how they really feel about government, the fact that they have guns doesn't matter because they can't even collaborate to really put up a, a resistance. Uh-huh. And even if they had no guns, I think they could do a lot of damage just by being able to talk with one another and convince each other about what's really going on and, and spread videos and, and photos of what's happening and, and convince each other. So it's interesting you say that because I've heard this expressed by Americans before. Uh, they basically say there's a reason that the First Amendment was first and that the Second Amendment was second. Right. And, right. Um, I I tend to think that the two are, are pretty intertwined. Right. Because the more dangerous you know, a, a given population is the more unprofitable direct violence against them is, you know, the less likely those natural rights that that, that right to speak, uh, say and speak and think and to express yourself and to gather with others and share ideas. Um, the more the, the the less likely those natural rights are to be infringed, right? The, the more unprofitable it is to try to un- infringe against those rights, which is where being armed and dangerous comes in. Um, but I, no, I totally agree with you because, it, it, you know, like it's, it's like, uh, it, it's very George Orwell, you know, like it's, uh, if you control, you don't even have to control what they think, just what they think about or the words that they use and how they think, um, or, or, you know, what's acceptable in the, the public squares, right? It is just, and, and you can extrapolate public squares out into a lot of spaces today in the information age. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, um, Defining how people talk about things, defining about what uh, they say and what they feel comfortable talking about is really way more powerful. Um, and, and and here's where um, I, I take a pretty extremist view. Like, you know, so you have people who are Second Amendment, you know, gun nuts, let's just call them, right? Who say like, everyone should have a gun. I want a tank. Don't tell me what I need. I don't want registries, right? I am that, but for First Amendment. And specifically, my view is that encryption of any kind in any way, in any shape or form, should be completely unrestricted. Any attempt to restrict the use of applied cryptography for anything is a violation of my First Amendment rights. And I'm saying this out of Canada, so the irony is thick, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm hardcore. And here is where um, I want to introduce the trade-off. So with guns, a trade-off is kind of obvious. So if everyone has a gun, unfortunately, you're going to have a, an idiot that has a gun who leaves it on the table and his kid picks it up and shoots you know, a sibling, right? And that's just a, a shitty reality of guns. There's no, you know, like, like you could say, well, lock it up in a safe and have a pin pad key that you don't tell anyone, but he's an idiot. He didn't do that. Um, you know, you have school shootings, you have people, you know, criminals, you have bank robberies, all these things, you know, suicides that might've not necessarily happened, or at least have not been successful with encryption. You also have a trade-off and the downside is that we're going to allow criminals to communicate. And we're also going to allow uh, criminals to exchange money, criminals to uh, plot, criminals to do whatever. I mean, as an example, um, you know, the the freedom, the First Amendment right for people to talk against a fascist government also gives idiots the right to talk against a normal government. So a normal government that isn't necessarily, you know, a terrible fascist dictatorship might still be uh, harassed by this, you know, by, by, by uh, the, the ability of free speech. But even more so, the, the typical problem is things like 
um, the distribution of illicit materials online. You know, in particular, um, what what what's uh, what's correctly referred to as uh, child sexual abuse material, so CSAM for short. Um, and you know, it's an unfortunate r- reality that you know when you look at Facebook and 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 uh, Telegram, WhatsApp, and Instagram, and all these different platforms that allow you to send messages to one another, and now they're trying to encrypt those messages. A lot of these platforms become places where people exchange, um, you know, various bad things. You know, most notably, again, CSAM is. Uh, it's not the thing that happens most, but it's the thing that's the worst from the sort of obvious public view, right? It's the school shootings of encryption mm. um, because it, it negatively affects kids. Um, and my view is that we have to accept that as a as as a as a trade off because. Um, the benefits so far outweigh uh, the, the negatives. I, I think we should establish uh, in the context of the con- this conversation that laws typically aren't very effective at preventing criminals from engaging in uh, harmful activity. Laws are put in place to prevent law-abiding citizens to per- to um, from doing whatever you know activity or engagement that that law uh, is put in place from respect to. So like an example being, you know, I can make it illegal to rob the liquor store down the street from my house. And it just so happens that that is illegal, but a criminal, you know, with the proper motivations or the proper intentions to go into that liquor store and rob it is going to do it, whether it's legal or illegal. The only thing that that does for me as a law abiding citizen is give me a little nudge that says, Oh, Hey, I'm going to reminder. Don't do that. Cause I'll go to prison. Uh, and actually, it's funny that you mentioned speech, hang on. Oh, that's going to be good. I just so happen to have a copy of um, Cody Wilson's Come and Take It right here uh-huh. right next to my desk, which that's right. I've been rereading this because he's a phenomenal writer. Um, his so prose is, is Cody heavy, Wilson, but- he, uh, he, he's printing 3D guns. He's th- that's his big, uh, big philosophy, right? Right. And interestingly... He draws the comparison in his book that a 3D printed gun file is speech. Yes. Yeah. Right. And that, that's kind of like what we're seeing today, right? As we're as we're watching this old paradigm of, of industrialization sort of melt away, right? Where, you know, power structures were built around um, in, uh, nations' abilities to build steel mills and automobile factories and all these things. And we're watching that sort of melt away as industrialization sort of just gets replaced by these new technologies and by the information age. Um, there's this new paradigm emerging where it's like, okay, well, now that we have the ability to print a gun anywhere at any time, Technically, that's that's free speech. That's that's communication. I actually, when you were saying um, talking about how you think communication is a more powerful weapon, I was thinking, okay, so it's like a me- weapon of mass destruction, but for you, it's like a weapon of mass communication. That's what cryptography is, is what you're saying, right? Right. Yeah. No. Hundred percent. And I, I think you know uh, what Cody Wilson has done is a pretty good example of the power of um, you know figuring out a way to circumnavigate against any sort of embargo or difficulties by the state. And I think it's a, it's a healthy bit of resistance. Um, I just think that um, right now the conversation in the public, you know, it's, it's not necessarily great about guns, but it's also really not great about encryption. Um, uh, Typically when you tell someone 
that you are working on anything with a high degree of privacy, the immediate response is you've got to be dealing with criminals. Like, mm. like the only reason why you want privacy is because you're, 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 you're doing something criminal. Um, it's interesting because it's so obviously wrong. Um, you know, I think a good example of this was, um, you know, um, uh, when Edward Snowden came out with his, uh, you know, revelation about what was happening at the NSA. And then John Oliver did an interview with him. I'm not sure if you remember that, that interview uh, John Oliver did with I don't follow Snowden. John Oliver, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't either. But, but uh, in this case, he did a pretty great interview. And he went to see Snowden in Russia in person, mm. right? So, which was crazy. And um, he interviewed him and Snowden was like, you know, the people really care about what I'm saying. They care about free speech. They care about like um, what the government's doing. And John Oliver was like, no one cares. We ask people, no one cares. They don't care about, you know, interception of files. They don't care about monitoring. And, and then, uh, uh, you know, um, what John Oliver did was very clever. Um, he asked just uh, about dick pics. Like if, if, the, if the government can see you naked, like if they can see a dick pic that you sent or if they can see you through a webcam or whatever. And Snowden kind of offhandedly said like, yeah, this is a kind of funny thing, but everyone in the NSA knows that we can see a lot of people naked, like all the time, like their dick pics and um, like what they're saying to each other. And it's kind of like an inside joke. And then John Oliver kind of got really extremist about privacy. So he was like, wait a second. And then he gave him a, a folder and in the folder, He's like, he's like, Snowden, I need you to look at that folder. And then Snowden opens it up and it's a picture of his dick, right? So he's, <laughs> we, don't, we don't see it on camera, but it's kind of a, a joke. And then so now John Oliver is asking Snowden about all the violations of government in the context of them intercepting your dick pic. And then John Oliver goes back to the States, asks people. It's, it's, it's well worth um, looking into because it's, it's funny, but it shows you the problem with the narrative and privacy, which is... I don't care about privacy. It's only for criminals. And then as soon as you bring up something, it's like, I care about privacy a lot. Mm -hmm. And the, mm -hmm. the, the, the trigger is like so obvious, but people can't make that, that like leap. And the, the worst part is that the narrative in the media is always, you know, encrypted platform, encrypted this is harboring um, child abusers and um, uh, Muslim extremists and far right wing supremacists and, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it becomes like, you know, this thing where I don't want privacy because I'm okay. I'm a normal person. I don't need privacy, but this isn't true. We need privacy almost all the time. We're using encryption 80,000 times a day. Every time you do anything on your web browser, you're, you're doing encryption with the servers that you're connecting to your bank, you know, like that's all encrypted, your emails, everything you're doing is constantly encrypted. Um, and, and yet people don't want to respect the, the, um, uh, those rights um, until, of course, they need them. And then often it can be too late. That's a, yeah, and that's, yeah. That's, that's really interesting. So when you first mentioned the, the thing that John Oliver said to Snowden, my immediately thought was, you know, he's, he's actually right. Um, you know, let me set aside my feelings about John Oliver and his politics and whatever else. He's, he's right. No one cares. Um, but I, I actually really like that story, the way that he frames it, because people will say, oh, I have nothing to hide. Well, if that's true, why are you wearing clothes, right? I mean, we, certainly <laughs> yeah. there are things that we have that are private, right, that we expect to be private, um, but we don't 
talk about those things because they're private, right? We, we, we say, an interesting thing has happened um, that I've witnessed in the last five, 10 years or so where uh, intellectuals, state agencies, intelligentsia, I don't know what, whatever it is that you want to call them, they've redefined terrorism. Um, whereas it used to mean, you know, using fear to manipulate and control population, they've, they've redefined it to mean um, actions taken by any group or individual that are designed to subvert the authority of a local government. Um, oh, yeah, that's very different. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And, and you can see how under that framework, um, the total, you know, you, you could maybe even convince people, well, you know, as long as we screen the ones looking through your dick pictures for any illegal weapons and child pornography, um, it, it's a, it's fine. As long as we make sure the right people are doing it, it's for your safety. It's for everybody's safety. And, and like, you know, how, how soon we forget it wasn't that long ago that cryptography was pretty much illegal and, and unusable outside of military application. Exportation of cryptography was illegal. I mean, I don't know if too many, I would imagine you know, a fair number of the listeners know who Phil Zimmerman is and know about the, that story and the, the whole this shirt is illegal thing with the um, in, encryption <laughs> posted on the shirt, right? I mean, those things, th that's history that's worth knowing. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Yeah, uh, you know what you said, like with terrorism, if you redefine it as just subverting a local government, then technically, I think you and I almost classify as terrorists at this point. That's true. Um, but they want you to think. I think. Uh, I believe. Uh, yeah, and this is this is scary, but it it, it brings an important point because um, the, 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 there are two things to think about. So people say, "I have nothing to hide," right? The first thing is you don't know if the NSA is just a guy who's happy to invade your privacy for like his own sexual pleasure. So even though the NSA has no interest in following naked people, like, you know, some celebrities or some, some women or whatever, or guys, this particular individual could just abuse his power. Right. And so we see this with, for example, police, right? Most police officers are excellent people, but you can have a police officer who is just happens to be abusing power in, mm -hmm. in, in a very narrow context. I don't like it when people say all police are evil because one person made a terrible judgment call. That to me seems uh, very uh, um, a poor uh, um, logical step there, but, um, but that can happen. So the first thing is, is that the power to invade your privacy might be used against you, even though the government doesn't support that. That's the first thing, right? The second thing is that the government then might call you a terrorist. You just don't know when. Like if they rebrand what terrorism is, and the word terrorism, by the way, it's kind of a weird word. Like it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's only a word designed for political use because like what is terrorism? Like what, like, like, like when you, when you think about it, so when, when America goes to other countries or, or, or fights wars or, or, or bombs someone, like, how is that not like, if you say terrorism is causing terror for political gain, every war is just terrorism, 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 terrorism. Like I'm confused where you draw the line from one thing to the other. Hmm. And so it seems like a useless word, like aggression seems like just a better word than terrorism, but it's less politically motivated. Like this person aggressed on that person. But with terrorism, it's like this person terrorized, you know, th this group. And it's like, well, I mean, 
you know, and, and again, it's the difference between freedom fighters and terrorists, right? It's just, and I've, I've witnessed some interesting rationalizations um, from the same person who I told, told heard say that the new definition of terrorism is that uh, also said, and by the way, George Washington wasn't a terrorist because the English crown was wrong to tax the American citizens without representation <laughs> or something like that. You yeah. know, he gave some ridiculous post hoc rationalization on why these people are terrorists, but this person wasn't a terrorist, even though their behavior is identical. Um, and and yeah. maybe even uh, motivated by the same ideologies. It's, yeah. it's, it's, and that's where, you know, nationalism tends to color um, people's thinking where it's more so this is right because my government is doing it and my government is the good guys. Yeah. Uh, th th that's the worst part is that all these words do is they're trying to justify one wrong and then like demonize another wrong. Right. So they're just trying to, you know, there's, there's a war happening. And when you look at it objectively, it's young people shooting each other and, and getting killed before they get to marry or have kids or live their lives. Right. But when you look at it from the perspective of a political, um, you know, Mussolini type, uh, um, who, who's the guy, uh, Goebbels, who like uh, did all of the, um, uh, for Hitler, he did all of the um, propaganda. When you look at it through the propaganda, it's like, no, these freedom fighters heroically destroyed the terrorist faction that tried to undermine the de democratic beautiful government of the free people of the, and it's, it's all this stuff where everything, every shot fired here is good. Every shot fired here is evil. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate because going back to like this first amendment argument, second amendment argument, um, you know, you could be called a terrorist. Like, like at the end of the day, when the fascist government comes, it will call anti-fascism terrorism and it will call pro-fascism, you know, freedom. So like whatever government that's evil comes to power, we'll call anyone against it the terrorists. So the, the thing is, is that in a weird way, when people say, you know, you're using applied cryptography to help uh, uh, criminal behavior, my answer, if we're being honest, is yes, because we have to protect criminal behavior because one day it's possible that good people will be labeled criminals, right? I mean, in America alone, we have a, a, a drug war that's put how many countless people in prison, right? That is immoral behavior. That's unethical behavior. And now it's like, well, now marijuana is legal. Invest in the stocks. It's great business. I'm, I'm excited to get equity into your firm. It's amazing. But before, it was just putting black people and just every people, but like it was just another way to cramp down on hippies and blacks and communists. You know, it was like, let's just tamper down on that and, and, and use that um, to, 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 to take people away from their kids and their, and their homes. And, and so, um, so yes, um, I think applied cryptography should be useful and it should even help criminals because we don't know when government will make um you a criminal for the wrong reason. And right now there are criminals all over the world that are good people, specifically China. China is full of good criminals because they're people that are breaking the Chinese law, but they deserve to break the Chinese law. And, and Aviv, I don't want to put words in your mouth by any means, but I think what you're saying is when you say the words, we need to protect the criminals, like that's a, that's a dangerous statement. And I don't mean that like sure. to say, you no, know, how, could, how dare could you? What I mean is what you, you're not saying 
um, I think what the criminals are doing is okay, right? Be, like, cause like, let's use an example. Like, yes, there are plenty of people breaking laws in China who are just trying to survive or just trying to get by, or maybe not even hurting anybody, right? They're just breaking some arbitrary law somewhere in some book that, that was just put there by a bureaucrat just because it gave them more power in a certain situation. And you're not sitting here saying, we need to protect the, the murderous thieves and the child exploiters because we think what they're doing is fine. Uh, that's not what you're saying at all, right? I, I just kind of want to clarify that. No, not at all. I mean, it's it's the fact that it's a, it's a play on what the word criminal is because criminal, another way of saying criminal is anti-government or or uh, against the will of the government. So we need to protect the ability of people to go against the will of the government. And in some cases, against the will of the government means doing something awful, which I hate and I don't want to protect, but I'm forced to protect in the same way when, when we say with free speech, I disagree with you, but I will die. I will you know, fight to the death for your right to say what you're saying. Right. So that means if you believe the earth is flat or if you believe um, that all Jews are are, are, are are aliens that must be exterminated, like I completely disagree with you, but I have to defend your right to say that. Because if I don't defend your right to say that, then I'm just giving a way in for my right to say what I think is more legitimate to be taken away as well. And so when I say we have to, um, you know, protect the criminals, what I'm, what I really mean to say in more kind of clear and concise and, and, and less maybe ambiguous terms is we have to defend those who are marginalized in society under various governments because we don't know when a government could marginalize. Uh, people in a way that's so bad that we will need a Nuremberg trial to hang all of the people that were responsible for what happened. And so in that case, we need to defend people who are marginalized under governments and marginalized under governments in, in, from the perspective of that government is a terrorist criminal. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the problem. That's the, uh, and um, so I'm, I'm thinking through this what you're saying and, and i totally agree with you right but i'm thinking through the the steel man side of things here because i know what the uh the the dissenter you know the dissenting listener is going to say they're going to say well you know i yeah i hear what you're saying and uh that would be a problem if we lived in china or in um iran or you know North Korea. Uh, but I live in the United States. I live in Canada and my representatives are democratically elected. And then our laws are um, upheld by the social contract of democracy. And all of we, we only elect the best people for the job. And their only purpose is to um, purport the will of the people. Right. We are we are the willfully lawfully governed. And if you're breaking our laws, well, then you're trespassing on what we've agreed upon in society. Um, and, and I know that there's a lot of problems with that. But what would you say to somebody who said that? Yeah, I mean, the, the issue there is that um, even if you do have a fantastic government with every official that elected is just an upstanding citizen that really does represent the interests of the people, which, by the way, I don't think anyone is honestly saying that about almost anyone in government, in any government, but especially like, I mean, you know, you look at America and people can't name five politicians they like, like on a deep level that they respect. Uh, And there are hundreds that are running the country. Um, But I would say, even if you're in the best possible world, um, the difference between 
uh, a stable and good society turning towards fascism, unfortunately, history has shown that it takes very little. To the people on the left who disagree with me, I would say, you know, you thought Trump was a Nazi fascist dictator, and that happened so quickly. And you said it couldn't happen, and then it did. To the people on the right, you you know, you, you say the same thing about other candidates, and you're saying how things are quickly escalating in the opposite direction. Again, like COVID is a good example of very like what people claim to be very fascist-like behavior. And to both parties, I would say we have to protect free speech because you even you admit that when, when things turn, they turn quickly, and you have to have the right to talk about it, share about it, discuss what's going on, and uh, being being silenced is worse than having your guns confiscated. It is plainly worse. So a lot of people don't know this, but actually uh, in the earliest days of America, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going on a tangent here. Um, no, John okay, Adams, cool. I think it was it was John Quincy Adams, actually. It was during the Quasi-Wars. So as long as he was president during the Quasi-Wars, he actually made it illegal to criticize the federal government um, in like some of oh, the wow. earliest days of America, right? And it was called the Aliens and Seditions Act, I believe. Um, and, and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison actually had to write letters under pen names um, <laughs> criticizing this you know, new <laughs> political policy of the government because at the time Jefferson was actually secretary of treasury and right. what he was doing was treasonous to criticize right. the administration that he worked for directly breaking the law that making it illegal to criticize the government. <laughs> it's, it's actually a really awesome story, but, um, that no, sounds it, so cool. That, that takes, sounds like a very interesting story. It takes principled people standing up for, um, you know, what, what's in the, the foundational first principles of liberty, right? Which are the ability to say what you want to say when you want to say it without fear of persecution, right? And, and in the event that somebody intends to persecute you for saying or believing something that they don't like or don't want you to believe, you have the right to expect, you know, a recourse for that, right? Because they're infringing on you. They're committing violence against you. And that especially applies to governments. And right, that's where the Second Amendment thing comes in, right? Because it's like, well, an armed and dangerous population is, is more difficult or less profitable to try to exploit. Um, but I totally agree with you there, man. Like, I, I think you are really on to hitting the nail on the head here. And honest, you know, so about that, like, uh, it's hard to exploit an armed and dangerous population. Definitely agree. I, sp I especially agree in the 20th century context. I think in the 21st century, um, a phone is almost as strong as a gun, hmm. because if someone starts to exploit someone in public, taking out a phone and videotaping it is like, that's going to change everything. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think this is always a good thing. I think that, for example, police officers are in a really tough spot right now where, you know, they're doing their job, they're putting their lives at risk and people are taking out these phones and it's like, they just don't know. Like it's today the day that I go on national news and my life is over because I just made a mistake mm -hmm. in, in, in the line of fire. Like I was, I could have died today and I made a mistake. Um, but th this just goes to show that, um, you know, uh, communication is so powerful uh, um, and it's very hard to exploit a population that is very good at communicating what's happening, spreading videos, spreading images, getting retweets, like, you know, like a, a thousand retweets is probably more powerful than a bullet at this point. Um, so um, yeah, 
but I think they go hand in hand. I'm not saying you need one and not the other. I think both make sense. It's just a matter of which one is more effective and which one should we protect with more um, extremism or at least with more certainty. And I think that First Amendment, we sh- like, I think like half the population should be like First Amendment nuts, mm. like just completely no, I'm not drawing any lines. There's no place where I, I concede any ground. Mm. I'm 100% for all cryptography of any kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. The, um, you know, it, the, the world is changing so quickly and it's like, I, I, I do agree with what you said about how you, you believe that that would have been true in the 20th century, but less so today. And, and I think a good example of that is that we haven't had any major kinetic wars in the 21st century with the exception of, you know, some of the things that happened in the Middle East. And I don't mean to say that those weren't kinetic wars, but they weren't in the same sense that we had kinetic wars in the 20th century. There, there's, it's just different, right? And, and it's different because mutually assured destruction, the nature of warfare changes. And, and nowadays um, what we have is it's much more guerrilla in a sense, but it's also more information-based warfare um, between nation states where we see, you know, so you see this all the time. Like if you, if you read zero hedge articles and you see a Russian fighter jet buzzed the carrier deck of USS, whatever, or, you know, uh, Iranian national guard, small boats swarm, um, destroyer in Arabian Gulf or things like that. And what those things are doing is basically poking, um, to try and create provocations, right. That can then be recorded and used in, in or out of context, however necessary to purport certain narratives, right. So like the Iranians can swarm some ship somewhere and film it and just say, Oh, look at what they're doing. Look at what they're doing. They're pointing guns at us. They're pointing guns at us. And that, that type of information warfare, I think is more and more becoming, the dominant battlefield uh, in the 21st century. So it, it kind of goes both ways, right? Like we're, we're watching, and, and if anything, that should highlight how important it is for individuals to have open, free access to communication channels, communication protocols, cryptography to protect, you know, their right to say whatever they want, because we know, we know the governments are doing it, controlling narratives and manipulating information. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think this is a great way for us to um, segue into a, uh, into like where cryptocurrency is today, like where the space is today. So um, like, I, th- I think we've established kind of, you know, and you and I very much agree on this. I know you were like a big uh, fan of like Wasabi Wallet. You're a fan of like privacy tools. You're a fan of like uh, autonomy in the Bitcoin space, you know, uh, um, you know, be your own bank, um, you know, try to minimize uh, your exposure with exchanges that you know have high KYC and where we don't know wh- where those coins are, um, and so yeah, this is this is kind of like the philosophical framework of why I'm here. Like I- I'm here to essentially build these tools, these censorship-resistant financial instruments of last resort. So the financial instruments is where Bitcoin comes in, right? Because before you have PGP, that's a censorship-resistant tool of last resort. But um, you know, Bitcoin now is uh, is um, is the financial element to it. So. Um, so let me start by asking you, um, because I'm curious, because you, you have a podcast, you talk to a lot of people, what are you thinking about 
right now, you know, given the last, let's say, five months of what's happened in the cryptocurrency space? Um, well, I mean, Ben and I were talking about this last weekend. He's my co-host on our live show. Um, we were talking about the OFAC compliant blocks uh, and how we, we tend to expect like at a long-term basis, that's probably not going to be an issue. Although, you know, you never know. Um, maybe the game theory doesn't play out exactly like we expect. Um, or maybe, you know, they're just able to get, get enough control over the marketplace to be able to censor, you know, un unwanted transactions or force KYC onto people, you know, at the blockchain level. Um, you would hate to see that, right? And, and really, I, I see maintaining fungibility of transactions or maintaining privacy or obfuscating, you know, a lot of these attempts to sort of de-anonymize the crypto cryptographic nature of Bitcoin, sort of as threats to um, it, it's, its sovereign nature. Um, you know, maybe not a direct way to directly destroy its sovereignty, but certainly a, a way to sort of threaten it, put a chink in its armor a little bit. And, you know, I'm, I'm immensely um, proud of people like, like Francis Pouliot, who, you know, oh, yeah. coin joins every UTXO that comes in and out of his exchange. Um, and I'm sure that that's not a, it wasn't an easy thing to do technically. And I'm sure it wasn't an easy thing to do politically. And I'm sure that he's taken a lot of heat for it. But then at the same time, right, there's a lot of complications that come for the average user to be able to act privately on Bitcoin, because first it's very hard, and secondly, you know you're 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 putting a target on your back. To be honest, in a lot of ways, you know you you might find yourself blacklisted from an exchange one day, and now you can't get access to liquidity if and when you need it. Potentially, you know you might find um, that the IRS comes knocking at your door and needs your compliance for an audit, and you have practically no ability to, to comply with that audit because you've obfuscated all of your on-chain data. Um, there, there's a lot of potential problems with it, right? And, and privacy is very hard, especially in Bitcoin. Privacy is very hard. It's nuanced. It's very difficult. hard. Um, so you know, I'm, I'm kind of somewhere in the middle, right? Like I'm trying to just observe all of it and, and realize that there are a lot of problems that need to be solved. Yeah. Okay. So it's interesting. You seem to be in the rational part of the cryptocurrency space right now. Like this is the right thing to be thinking about. Um, I didn't know too much about the OFAC blocks. I almost thought that was a joke. Um, no, that's very real. So, so what, 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 what exactly happened? Uh, a government official came to a miner and told them to. So I forget the name of the company, but there's a company that's basically spinning up mining operations and has said, we will only include OFAC compliant transactions within our blocks. Therefore, our blocks that we produce will be OFAC compliant blocks. And what they're basically saying is like, if, if there's transactions going to blacklisted addresses in Iran, we are not putting them into our blocks, right? And, you know, you can see, you can extrapolate that out and see, okay, if there's um, transactions that are not coming or going to or from a regulated financial institution, we're not going to put them in our blocks. If there's transactions that are coming to and from coin join mixers, we're not putting them in our blocks. And it's not a problem, right, when they only control 5% of the hash or when they only produce 5% of the blocks or whatever. But um, you could see it maybe becoming a problem if somehow, oh, wow. some way they get up to 80%, right? And Ben and I have yeah. sort of like game theoried this out and said, well, you know, at a certain point, you're going to start to see fee markets build up, you know, in, right. in the gray and the black markets. And 
that might potentially put those miners out of business. And then you say, well, what if the government starts subsidizing those mining operations? And then it's kind of like, where does it go? Ooh, that was loud. Sorry about that. No worries. Um, but yeah, you know, there's a lot to think through and talk about there. Yeah. So that, that is definitely a concern. I just don't think uh, if someone was actually going to go through with it with like a large, uh, like a, like a country, a big country with a lot of money seriously wants to go through with it. That's scary. I don't think they would or could, or, or like even, yeah, like I, I think no one would want to do that just on the grounds that, um, like one thing that might happen is like a hard fork of Bitcoin where right. something, right. you know, just some, anything comes to place where, um, you know, where we forcefully have to put in Monero type code into Bitcoin, like just to forcibly get rid of, of this, um, right. um, of this, this type of censorship. Um, so I think it, it would be very, it would be a bad idea that would cost a lot of money to like pursue. Right. So, well, and you're um, always creating profit opportunity for anybody anywhere else in the world, you know, in any other jurisdiction that doesn't want to comply with that OFAC compliant compliance and is willing to mine those transactions and, and rake in that whatever premium those transactions are willing to pay to get included. Right. Because like, eventually you're going to see a feed market build up. Right. Those transactions that are being censored by the OFAC miners and you, you, you're creating profit opportunity for anybody that doesn't want to comply with that regulation. Yeah. Further, I would imagine people would troll them by purposefully trying to get like blacklisted stuff into the blocks, maybe getting uh, a coin that isn't obviously blacklisted in and then revealing later that it's very blacklisted. Um, so somebody already sent CoinJoin dust to their Coinbase reward. The first right. OFAC compliant block that was produced, somebody sent CoinJoin dust to that address right right and um that that uh, yeah so i i can imagine that coming into play um as well i can also imagine the opposite where like uh people stop accepting ofac blocks like that we don't count them as a confirmation like we need six non-ofac block confirmations to accept your money or something mm. and so uh ofac blocks become uh um i wonder if yeah. there's a way to just orphan those blocks um well I oh there you go. Actually, that's a good that's a good part of game theory. So if the ninety percent that weren't doing this said, "Guys, this is a threat to Bitcoin," um, the rule would be observe the last block. If it's OFAC, omit. You know, mm. and even though it has the most proof of work and all of that, um, that's just the new rule that we're adding. And it's a soft fork, right? It's mm -hmm. it's uh, it, you know you're limiting what what can be done, mm -hmm. and so we're 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 excluding OFAC blocks. I do worry that that could be a potentially dangerous software yeah. not at the technical level but at the the game theory level because it's like okay well if we did it to them what if we do it to slush pool right i don't know i mean just i don't know i don't know if that would ever happen if it did it'd, it'd certainly be interesting if it ever becomes a serious threat maybe we'll have to <laughs> revisit the conversation but you know, there's a lot of com complications there absolutely actually speaking of soft forks i just checked the taproot activation and we're at uh, 5.102 signaling blocks and 75 non-signaling, which is way better than the last uh, 2016 block period. So it looks like we're, we're, we're definitely making a lot of progress here. Um, and a lot of the mining pools are, are pro uh, soft fork. Um, mm. Do you have any uh, thoughts on this, uh, this taproot uh, soft fork? So 
you know, I, I, follow, I don't know much just to be clear. I don't yeah, follow this. I, a lot, so. I, I, I wish I understood Bitcoin better at a technical level. I, I, you know, I, I know some, <laughs> I, and I, I've been trying to follow like the BitDevs mailing list and it's honestly, it's getting harder and harder to keep up with their mailing list. Cause I feel like it's getting a bit noisy, but um, I look at this minor signaling thing more so as, Hey, if they do it, that's great. Um, but I, I, what I don't want to see is the Overton window shift here to is like, we need all of the miners to signal in order to prove that we can do this and make it happen. Um, because then I think we're sort of not learning our lesson from Segwit2x, right? Because mm-hmm. it was, it was then when we went through this process to establish, well, like, Hey, no, if you try to do something and the users don't want it, well, then we'll just um, implement Segwit ourselves. Like we don't want Segwit2x regardless of what all the miners are signaling for. So um, and, and maybe I'm messing up some of the nuance there, but I, that's my take on it. That's like from my general understanding of, of it. And, and I don't have a problem with speedy trial. Like, I think it's good that, that we're trying to think ahead through these things and, um, head off, you know, the, the, the fork and, and hopefully we can just get taproot activated. Cause I think for the most part, there isn't really any, um, dissension as far as like do we want taproot it's more so <laughs> arguing over how to implement taproot because upgrading bitcoin is is so complicated and has so much nuance to it so i don't know it's again it's another one of those things that i'm trying to just watch and listen to what the smartest people in the rooms have to say and hear both sides right like i'm i i, I don't i don't want to sling any mud here but um I, I i hope we get taproot i think taproot will be a benefit to bitcoin yeah, it sounds like there's not much bad about Tapper, you know, having more privacy with scripts, for example, only revealing what's necessary in a script, having scripts be a bit smaller and more compact. Um, uh, I'm not sure if Merkleized abstract syntax trees, essentially uh, a fancy way of saying you only reveal the script that you want to execute. If there's like 10 conditions, just reveal the condition that you've executed. Don't reveal the other nine. Um this saves a lot of space and it saves a lot of privacy. Um, there's also like Schnorr signatures, I believe that's part of Taproot, like something to do with a, like the ability for us to now use um, a more provably secure algorithm, right? Again, uh, um, ECDSA is is perfectly fine. It's, it's, it's secure, but uh, Schnorr has some nice properties to it that cryptographers can, can go on about at length. Um, and it's, it's, it's more, um, uh, on paper, it's more provably secure than ECDSA. Um, although, again, you'd have to speak just to a pr- cryptographer to really get the nuance there. So I think t- Taproot is, 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 is looking good. Um, it, from what I understand, they're going to keep doing these two-week two cycles, and um, the vote will slowly grow. And it's a very slow vote. It's not going to happen in two weeks or four weeks or six weeks. It'll happen, it looks like, by the end of August. It'll keep going. Um, and then if it doesn't happen by August, then it's like off the table and there's, we need to find a different way to push it forward. So it is, uh, it is pretty, um, pretty slow, but right now we have 60% of miners signaling, which is pretty cool. Um, and yeah, it'll be a nice little, uh, addition. Um, I want to s- take a moment to talk about Francis who runs uh, bull Bitcoin. Um, that guy is, a. Uh, uh, I think he definitely needs more credit just for he's the kind hero. of like, he's hundred percent. He's a fucking, he's fucking crazy, 
but he's also fucking awesome. Yeah. <laughs> That's the way I would describe Francis. I, I've had the pleasure of talking to him and meeting him. And um, this guy is, um, he is an absolute like cowboy of Bitcoin. Like he doesn't give a fuck. He's doing everything on his own terms. And he is not scared of, of, of breaking new ground and doing things uh, to, to make progress. Um, you know, like, you know, I don't think there's a single person I know that's running an exchange that I, I know would die for my right to privacy more than mm-hmm. Francis. Like he is hardcore about absolutely not taking advantage of his customers. Like he doesn't hold tons of Bitcoin on behalf of his users. He's trying to make this non-custodial. He doesn't want people to lose money with him. He doesn't want his, you know, his exchange to get hacked and that to like be on the shoulders of, of, his, of his users. He doesn't want to harass users with KYC and restrictions. And he's, um, you know, he's following the rules to the best of, of, of his ability, but he is, he is not, you know, He's he's a um, he's a thought leader and he is a philosopher first and a capitalist second, and that's very important. Like he he's a very principled man. Um, so when when I see the way that he he um, he reasons about things, um, it's more to do with principle than it is to do with necessarily making the most amount of money. When I think a big part of that too, I, if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure before he got into Bitcoin, he was like an economic policy analyst or something like that. <laughs> that's interesting yeah i, I might be mincing words there is something to do with like that that type of uh working as an analyst like something to do with like economic policy or something yeah i i you know i don't i don't know what what, what he did before but that would be funny because if he was an economic policy analyst i can imagine him just swearing all the time in french at people who were presenting economic po- policy yeah you know, just like you want my analysis, fuck you. You know, yeah. kind of very no, I, like Quebecois, I, like a I think, aggressive. I think he almost lost the plot before he found Bitcoin. I think it about drove him nuts, and then yeah, and then he and, was able. And 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 honestly, like I I want to be more like you know, like so many of these guys. Like I look at them, like guys like Francis and guys like Gigi and and these brilliant thinkers that are also doers you know what i mean they're implementers they're out there in the trenches building you know that's what i want to do and that's what i would encourage my listeners to aspire to and guys like like you aviv you know you're like out there yeah like we can sit here in soapbox all day long about these philosophies and stuff but if we can't manifest them and make them a reality or at least get more people on board like we're just larping yeah yeah um and actually i want to bring up another group um uh wasabi wallet Right. Specifically, mm-hmm. I want to talk about uh, the incredible people that are working on Wabi Sabi, which is the next version of, of Wasabi Wallet. So Wasabi Wallet right now has um, uh, uh, a coin join implementation um, and it's going to be upgraded. And there are tons of upgrades to really help people who, f- who have found the previous uh, iteration, um, ZeroLink, um, to be uh, cumbersome. There's, there's so many drawbacks to uh, denominations, to the timing, to the cost, to the actual anonymity, um, um, all sorts of things. People don't like the fact there's change left over. A lot of these things are being solved. It's been a year and a half now that Wabi Sabi has been worked on. Uh, you can already read a draft of the paper. I can throw a link um, that could be you know down below the video or, or um, you know uh, nearby. But if you just go on um, GitHub here, and look up um, 
um, uh, ZK Snacks. I believe it's ZK Snacks. Okay, well, we'll, we'll take a look here. Uh, um, but anyways, uh, um, and I wanted to name a few people, but I didn't want to. Uh, um, here we go. Um, so it's uh, GitHub uh, ZK Snacks backslash Wabi Sabi. And the latest version of the PDF is right there in the front. So you can click and download. So the people that are working on it, obviously, Adam uh, uh, Fichor, I believe is his, how you say his last name, uh, Nopara73. Um, who's the head of, of uh, Wasabi Wallet. Uh, Yuval, who is a uh, really like, phenomenally smart guy. Yuval Cogman, uh, Lucas Ontivero uh, is fun. Um, um, you know, all, all of these people are, have done amazing work and the, you know, the paper is really coming together. I haven't actually been participating uh, in, in this because of my own work and because of uh, how busy I have been. I, I was a part of... Uh, of this paper, and I am in, in the acknowledgments. By the way, thank you to the Wabi Sabi team for 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 thanking me in the acknowledgments. Um, but uh, they've done a great job um, as well. Uh, Yahya um, uh, Thidas uh, Dryja, who was part of the Lightning uh, implementation. Adam Gibson uh, Waxwing, who is um, part of uh, early coin join stuff. Dan Gould, Ethan Heilman, Max Hillebrand, you know, hardcore hardcore dude. Uh, Jonas Nick, Tim Ruffing, Ruben Thompson. Um, all of these people, Greg uh, Zavarucha. Okay, I don't know who that is, but I'm sure he's done a good job because he's also in the acknowledgments. Um, yeah, there are people that are actively doing great work um, to to promote, you know, uh, you know, free speech in the form of of privacy on Bitcoin. Um, and whereas people like uh, Francis are really providing liquidity, like getting on the ground and getting their hands dirty and helping individuals. Mm -hmm. You have people here who are doing the more intellectual stuff, writing out stuff, building the next protocol. They can pass it on to the developers who can then build it and then, and then give it to the people such as Francis who will then, you know, weaponize it, use mm -hmm. it, uh, uh, for the greater good. And it's, 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 um, it's definitely, um, exciting overall. So yeah, like it's, it's a great attitude to have, like, don't just listen, you know, it's great to do this for your listeners. It's great to do this on your Saturday and Sunday, you know, in your free time, listen to the podcast, but if you can like go, like learn to code, like, like participate. And you mentioned um, Max Hillebrand. He's a great example. Cause as far as I know, he doesn't really code. He mostly just does like document review and he, you know, does like um, make suggestions and like tests stuff out and like finds bugs and does bug reports. And it's like, Max is a great example of somebody who's um, doing extremely valuable work and, and living out his philosophy with action, even though he, you know, he, he might know how to read code and write code. Like, but I'm, I'm repeating what he said on my show, like a couple of weeks ago, like he, he's not a coder. He'll tell you that himself. Um, and yet you see him mentioned all the time in these places where these people are making inroads on new privacy protocols. No, hundred uh, percent. I should stress that I'm also not a coder. I mean, I've coded before I've taken coding classes. I know a little bit of coding, but uh, strictly speaking for my job, you know, I, I don't code. I work with developers. I work with uh, 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 other people and help uh, with uh, architectural design and help with, uh, you know, you know, the math stuff, the business stuff, uh, putting the pieces together. There are many aspects to a project that aren't just coding. And it's important for everyone who's listening to, to appreciate that. Max, by the way, is almost a coder at this point. The hmm. amount of stuff he's learned, you know, just the stuff that he's done, like there are people that call themselves coders and know half of what Max knows. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> and Max is like, but I'm not a coder. It's like, yeah, okay, Max, 
fine. You're he's not a, hum- a coder. He's a humble dude. He's a humble dude. He, he's a very humble dude. It's like, Max, you're on GitHub a lot. Okay. <laughs> you're doing a lot of pull requests and, and this and that. You're doing a lot of reviews. You're, you're, you're on the coding team. Okay. Like, let's just, we're, we're, you don't want to call yourself a coder. Fine. But you're on the coding team. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, but even if Max wasn't a coder, you know, everything else that he does, uh, the FAQ, the videos explaining, like helping people on board, the marketing, the designs, the reaching out, like uh, the convincing people that this is important, you know, going on podcasts, like that's what Max is doing, like the best out of anyone, mm-hmm. just going on mm-hmm. podcasts, pitching Wasabi, saying you should use it. It's the ethical thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It's unethical to not use privacy. Um, that's amazing. And it's valuable. And if you just have coders, you're, you know, you, everyone needs a Max Hillebrand. Everyone needs a Max Hillebrand. Um, and unfortunately, Max Hillebrand, just like Francis, is also in, so incredibly principled. The company I work for, we tried to get Max Hillebrand because they're like, Aviv, do you know anyone who's the best at talking to people and who's incredibly good at marketing and who's just smart and knows what he's talking about? I'm like, I know the best guy ever, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is Max Hillebrand. And, you know, um, and we couldn't get him. Uh, for good reason too, because um, uh, he didn't want to compromise. He didn't want to keep quiet. He didn't want any NDAs. He, he wanted to be unrestricted. He he wanted first and foremost to help people, mm-hmm. not to help companies. Mm-hmm. He doesn't care about a company. He works for Wasabi only in that Wasabi also only cares about helping people. They're not trying to, you know, Wasabi is the kind of company that if you go to them and you're like, I'm going to steal your code and I'm going to make my own Wasabi, they'd be like, yeah. Go for it. We'll help you out. Like, give us a call. Like, we'll, we can. We'll we'll tell you how to run the the back end and the coordinator. Like, yeah, go, go, go. Do do your thing. Tell hopefully us. Hopefully, you make it better. <laughs> hopefully, you make it better. Please make it better. And um, of course, the lawyers at the company are not going to be happy with that attitude. But it's true from the from Adam, who's the CEO. Um, that that those guys are just incredible people. Like, um, they're they're doing um, amazing things. Like, I can't stress how good the people at Wasabi are. Um, you know, I would say equally as good as someone like Francis. Um, um, okay. So wait, so getting things done. Um, let's see. Um, I think, um, the next thing I wanted to talk about would be, um, we have two choices here. One is a systemic risk that I've been sort of looking at in the Bitcoin space. And the second thing we can talk about is sort of what's happening at, at, uh, where I work, the company I work for, um, which is kind of a crazy story. Um, so I'm going to leave it up to you. What would you like to talk about? Um, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't, just, uh, just start talking. Tell us, tell us more. All right. So we're going to talk about some crazy stories. So, um, um, I had some front and, you know, like I'm going to be very careful here because we are going to be talking about something that has a legal value, right. Um, in terms of, uh, um, um, yeah, there, there's essentially an ongoing case. Let's just put it that way. So I'm, I'm going to try to, you know, be careful with with, with uh, what I say. But uh, I'll say it like this. So I, I work for a company in, uh, in 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 Canada here for the last uh, three years, and it's a, a a company focused on privacy software, but it's also focused on various other things. Like it's part of a larger umbrella company that has other sister companies with it, and you know, like has many products, everything from like restaurants to, you know, um, you know, get a gift card app, uh, privacy software. Um, a Bitcoin wallet, which was sort of what, what I'm um, uh, a part of. And, um, and we had um, a pretty crazy um, incident happen to us a couple months ago, which has really turned my perspective on the war on privacy. And I think this is 
um, something that needs to, to be shared. So, um, you know, two months ago, uh, the, so hmm, our company in Canada was selling and distributing, um, tools of encryption in particular, um, some of the most, uh, secure and encrypted, uh, 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 communication phones in secure communication networks in the world. So essentially, uh, um, the company I work for was, um, um, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, selling a product that had the highest uh, grade of encryption um, and security and communication. Um, the important thing with the company was that it had very strict rules about um, what it cared about, like privacy and security were the two things, the only two things that the company cared about. So the company in particular, um, was not, um, uh, very, um, you know, like could not compromise on, for example, harassing clients, like asking clients a bunch of questions, you know, getting emails, like, you know, sending out, you know, nonstop emails. We really wanted clients to have that security and that, and that, and that, uh, uh, and, and that encryption. Uh, two months ago, um, um, what ended up happening was um, <clears throat> and I'm, I'm thinking how to choose my words because it very may well be that we have to just cut this entire thing out, but you know that could be the case, but oh well, like uh, but essentially, uh, the US government uh, filed an indictment against my boss, not against our company, alleging, that he is part of the drug cartels because people who use these encrypted phones, some of these people were selling and buying drugs. And because my boss and, and our company, well, of course they didn't mention our company. They mentioned, they only indicted um, uh, my boss and uh, um, an individual that didn't work for the company who was distributing these phones. Um, they, they essentially alleged that um that he was knowingly and happily profiting off of, of, of drug deals. Now, here's what matters about the story. Uh, an indictment is essentially an accusation. It's essentially saying we have some evidence and we're accusing you of a particular crime. And that's totally fair. That, that happens all the time. The problem is that what happened next was, um, um, so for starters, we're in Canada where there are very strong privacy laws. We actually have the right, like everything we're doing is completely legal. The company has been alive for 10 years. It's totally public. It's totally, anyone can, can walk in and, and, and see a beautiful head office in downtown Vancouver. Um, but the, um, let me take a second here. Um, what happened next was without any legal proceedings, all of the companies that worked with us in particular, BlackBerry and various, like even the domains, we bought domains from American companies like GoDaddy, right? Is an American company. So if you have a domain for your website, you might buy it with GoDaddy. They all capitulated instantly to the US government. And our entire like flagship application was destroyed overnight. No legal proceedings, no, no nothing from the court. We, no Canadian RCMP like police officer arresting anyone, nothing. But our product, our privacy product that served almost 100,000 people worldwide um, overnight because of uh, um, the United States Department of Justice out of California, right, uh, issuing an indictment overnight, our company was almost like cut completely. 
Like, mm. and, and, and thankfully my boss, he is an incredibly, you know, he's, he's a, he's a brilliant, he's a capitalist, he's a businessman. He has many businesses and he's done very well for himself and he's not in jail. He's not like, there's no one looking to get him. Of course, he probably shouldn't go to the United States, but you know, he lives in Canada. He's a Canadian citizen. We have a Canadian company. Um, you know, he's going to be fine. And the company is continuing to, to, to move forward with, with other ideas, which I'm probably not going to talk about just yet, because I would like for him and, and the marketing team to get that first blow um, uh, to, 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 you know, show what we're, you know, that we're still extremely excited and passionate about privacy. We're not backing down at all. That's all I'm going to say is that uh, he's not at all scared about this. He, he could completely just leverage his other businesses that have nothing to do with privacy and just be on his merry way, but he's, he's going in the opposite direction. Um, but what I will say is that it's been devastating to, to, to see what's happening uh, to privacy in the space because uh, it looks like Signal might be next. And that's what it looks like because mm-hmm. Signal just got offered its second subpoena. And although Signal came out and said, hey, um, we don't have anything from our users. We have nothing. The government comes after us and asks us for this information, but we can't give anything because we're a perfect encryption tool, whatever. Unfortunately, I can tell you and your listeners that uh, that's not true. Um, Signal does, in fact, have stuff on behalf of the list uh, of, of the users, uh, most notably their phone numbers, which are connected to their names and their addresses often, right? Mm. And their bank accounts. So that's the first thing. In fact, uh, the subpoena listed six phone numbers specifically saying these phone numbers, I want their accounts. I want any anything you have. And Signal does have some metadata. Again, not the same as the content itself, but it has metadata. And the scariest thing was the United States Department of Justice out of California, which issued the subpoena against Signal, asked for the location of their servers. Asked for the specific location of their servers. And I can tell you what's going to happen next. They're going to pull the plug on those servers. And they're going to pull the plug exactly the way they pulled the plug on us. No police officer has come and stopped us in any way. We've broken no laws. We were not in front of a court. Right. And yet the entire thing has, has, has fallen down by peer pressure alone. Mm. And Signal is looking at the same thing. And what's happening in privacy is horrifying because Signal is even a better example than what we do. They're a nonprofit organization. They attach phone numbers to their users, which means they're way less private in terms of communication. If you use attach a phone number to your signal, right? Just think about that. How private are you really? If you and I communicate, you can see these two phone numbers are having messages between each other mm-hmm. that already tells you the names of the people interacting. Mm-hmm. And the third, uh, the third thing is they use weak encryption. Unfortunately, they use uh, elliptic curves with known or, or alleged backdoors. A lot of cryptographers have speaking, uh, spoken ag- against these elliptic curves. And despite all of this, the American government is still going to attack Signal. Signal has been doing great this year as of January because of Edward Snowden and Elon Musk. You know, they had 30 million downloads a month in January, which is phenomenal. They're doing great. And nonetheless, you know, three weeks ago, second subpoena, and it looks like their servers are going to get pulled. And what, what people don't realize is that the American government isn't using the tactics, you know, like my boss, who is, uh, you know, like probably one of the smartest and, um, you know, just very uh, even keeled guy, you know, excellent business person. You know, we were, you know, the interesting thing he was saying was that it looks like the American government doesn't even necessarily want to prosecute because they've already gotten what they want. Mm. And if they did go forward with the case, 
that all that means is it would cost them a lot of money and they could lose in front of the public. They could mm. lose in a court of law. Mm-hmm. So now they don't even have to because for our company, all of that revenue, and I, I can tell you it's not a small amount, um, all of that revenue has already vanished. You know, uh, all, of, all of the branding has already been tarnished in, mm. in the public light. And it's a scary, scary thing um, that's happening. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there because, you know, it's a bit of rambling and I'll let you kind of ask questions and yeah. That's a lot, man. Yeah. Um, I, I assume you don't want to share the name of the company. No pressure. If you don't feel, don't feel obligated. I'm just curious. Um, yeah. I'm, cu- um, I'm curious if it has value to add the name of the company. Um, other than just like attracting clicks to like um, clickbait articles. Yeah, no, probably not. Um, Unless anybody listening is like, that guy is making this up. Like, I don't probably not. And I'm like, I don't really oh, care. If, yeah. If so listeners um, say that, like whatever. Yeah. So it's not going to be hard for you to Google us. I mean, um, yeah, we like I work, I work for the company that uh, sold encrypted phones um, um, around the world um, that, um, you know, like the, 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 there, there aren't like 50 other companies that also have, uh, like, there's only one company that meets the criteria of what I just described. So I'm sure you guys can, can look into it. Um, I don't want to um, needlessly encourage people um, to kind of jump onto that bandwagon. Um, um, but the one thing I do want to encourage is for people to think about whether this is how we want to live in society. I mean, think about this, a Canadian company built a product that's for privacy following every law in Canada. And then the Department of Justice out of California they shut it down. Plug. And they pulled the plug because they said that we violated a law in America. Like, th- think about that. Yeah, that's insane. Like, um, and, how, and, uh, and that is. How familiar a, are you with, sorry, go ahead. I don't mean to interrupt you. Well, I mean, it's insane because, um, you know, the whole story is insane. Right. You know, they're they they're they're killing the company's revenue. They're draining the company of funds legally. And uh, then they don't necessarily want to go uh, to trial with this or they might delay that purposefully because it, there's no benefit to them. Like they all mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. They, they wanted was already perfectly accomplished. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this point, even if today they announced we're so sorry, we're com- they are completely innocent. This was a, a, a big uh, whatever. Like you think we can continue that business the way it was? Like no, like all those people that were that that were under our uh, umbrella that were serviced by by us, their phones went dead. Like the network was shut off. Mm. We we had like two hours notice before the network was completely shut off. Wow. So they're 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 completely screwed, and um and you know we're not going to get the, the the trust back. Unfortunately, not 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 right away. Um. So the damage has been you know really tragic. Um, for me, of course, it's not my company. I didn't lose a ton of money. You know, I'm, I still have my job, and I'm so grateful that my boss is committed. Um, and, and you know, he's you know he has the money, he has the will to go forward, and so I'm you know I'm I'm doing I'm doing fine. It makes me sad that this is the world that I live in, and I didn't think that I would actually get to be part of the privacy war, but now, at least uh, tangentially, my name is part of that war. So, yeah, I mean, your your story. Uh... It definitely evokes a lot of emotion in me. It makes me pretty angry. Um, it makes me feel pretty shamed, actually, to know, you know, like, because, like, of course I know the U.S. government does lots of things that I don't approve of, right? Um, but 
something like that in particular. And, and this is the same type of tactic. Um, what, what I was going to ask you when I, when I almost interrupted you there was, um, about, uh, Andrew Torba. I don't know how familiar you are with him, uh, yeah. of Gab. Yeah. I've, I've talked with him before and he, you know, he has a really similar story and, and his product really had nothing to do with privacy. It was more so about protecting the right to free speech, right. On his, yep. on, on a communication platform, on an open communication platform, right? Not one where you need to have private conversation, but one where you want to have public conversation. And he was, he went through, you know, all the same stuff uh, had yep. his, um, um, name servers, you know, tried to shut him down. His hosting providers tried to shut him down. He ended up having to build his own architecture. All of his bank accounts were shut down. His PayPal was frozen, ended up having to pay his employees with Bitcoin, like, and pay for all of his like services that he needed with Bitcoin. I mean, it, he has a crazy story and, and not enough people talk about it. And, and he was kind of the canary in the coal mine that was telling people, I first interviewed him like three, four years ago. And, and I, and he was like, you know, no one's paying attention to what's happening to me because if it can happen to me, it can happen to anybody and they will come yeah. and they will shut you down when they don't like you. And there will be nothing you can do about it unless you're willing to pick yourself up by the bootstraps and build whatever you need yourself. Um, because, and, and I don't know, you know, I, I don't, I don't know your boss. I don't know what his plans are, but like, He's got a long road ahead of him, man, to try to get out in front of this thing and, and make himself. Um, and I don't mean that like to be discouraging by any means. It's just the reality. No, no it's, right? it's a fact. Yeah. To, to get him, a, yeah. make himself anti-fragile enough that, that you can't. And, and this is, you know, and I'm guilty of this, right? Like most of us are like, you know, we use Gmail, you know, we, we have our name survey. You know, if you run websites, they're hosted on fast comet or like whatever. And you've got all of these super awesome things that are super convenient and make the world more connected and easy to use. But like you, man, you can be turned off like a light switch, your bank yes. account, your email, everything, all of it. And, and what's crazy is that I have to remind everyone, you know, listening uh, about just specifically what's going on. So a Canadian citizen with a Canadian company in Canada with mm. all like Canadian employees, right? Um, it was accused from a different country that they participated in a drug war that that country is fighting, right? So the, the argument is that our crime here, right, isn't that we try to murder and we're like a, like a big band of mafias trying to kill people. It's that we helped move drugs. So drugs here is the excuse to, to shut down a, a, a company without even a trial. No and due process. It, right. it, it, a, across the border. It's, it's insane. So like, 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 you know, it's not proven he's guilty. He could be innocent. So right now what, what we're talking about is, so there's a presumption of innocence, which means that a likely innocent person, a currently innocent person, has his company taken and like, you know, kicked in the balls, essentially, um, you know, for doing something in a country that he wasn't doing it. And this is um, this is, you know, this is crazy. And uh, I, I want to talk about another thing that I've you know learned about being in this industry. You know, for example, here's how the American government um uh, engages in the war on privacy. And it's a war that the Canadian government has not engaged in, but the American government insists on engaging in it. If you go right now and you make an application of some kind and you publish it to the Google Play Store, right? Or the, um, 
um, the iOS store, uh, the Apple um, um, store. If you use a level of encryption above a particular threshold, you need explicit consent from the NSA every year to get that app published. Now, someone might say, wait a second, is that a law? And the answer is no, it's not a law. It's just that's what Google and Apple agreed to with the government. So it's not a law, but you can't do it, mm. right? And that's an interesting thing about this. It's like, it's, it's not a law. Like there's no law saying the maximum level of encryption is this high because that's kind of mm -hmm. crazy, right? Mm -hmm. But it's just the truth that Signal is allowed on the App Store because they are below it. that threshold. Mm. And if they were above that threshold, you know what the NSA would say? Nope, it's a risk to national security. I'm sorry, we can't allow Signal to use this encryption. Here, we've given you, this is the elliptic curve and these are the, the, the generator points and the, the prime numbers and the, this is the curve that you should use. This mm. one we think is safe wow. because this one we can break if we need to. And that is awful. It's, it's really, really bad. And, um, and I'm really worried about Signal. Like I, 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 it's been three weeks since the subpoena or I, th I think two, three weeks. And I am very paranoid that, you know, when, the, when I read this subpoena and it said, tell us where your servers are located, I was like, fuck, because they're just going to find a way to turn off the electricity for those servers. You know, I've been really skeptical of a lot of these end-to-end -end encrypted messaging platforms pretty much since they first started really taking off like a few years ago. And I didn't really know why. I just sort of had a feeling. I'm like, well, you can just like download the, download those things on app stores. Like there's no way they're really that encrypted. And like most of them, you have to link your phone number, you know, like you said with like Signal right. and Telegram. I'm like, I just, I'm just like really skeptical like that these, that these products are really truly end-to-end -end encrypted and, and, oh, your data is wholly your own and we don't have, we don't even have access to it. And I don't know, man, I don't know. And, and I, now that you explain it that way, you know, um, that makes sense that, that my hunch, my, my gut instinct was pretty close to the truth. Um, and just to be clear, Signal is great. The people sure, at Signal- Sure, I don't mean to disparage these companies offering products. Not at all, but it's, that's, unfortunately, this is what, like, uh, this is kind of what, this, the American government has done. You think Signal wants to use an elliptic curve that has been questioned by cryptographers right. and that like, no, they're doing it because there's no other way to get it out there. I mean, they're non-for-profit for God's sake. They're doing this, you know, um, for the good of the people. And I'm concerned that we're tomorrow or the next day or the month after that, or whatever it is, we're going to hear a story about some pedophile or some bad guy with a bad gun who's a Russian, Arab, Muslim, terrorist, whatever. And Signal was, Signal is, that's what it's for. It's the Arab, Muslim, terrorist, neo-Nazi, far right, far left, communist, anarchists that use it. And people will turn on Signal and they'll unplug them and people won't ask any questions. And it's, you know, our first amendment, right, when we actually need it is, 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 is getting taken away. You know, guns don't matter until you need them. Like, mm. that's the point, right? Like, if you don't have the guns when you need them, who gives a shit about having the gun when your friends are there and you're like, yo, dude, nice gun. Yeah, like, look at this. Uh, who that, that, That's not when it matters. It matters when you're in self-defense. It matters when the government is oppressive. That's when it matters. And so, you know, in this case, like, like it's, it's troubling that 
this is where things are going. And um, I'm, you know, it's funny because a lot of privacy companies are in Canada because Canada is a pro privacy country mm-hmm. and that it looks like America is doing what it does best, which is we have our laws and also they're your laws hmm. and you better follow them. And, and this hooks back into what we were talking about in the first half of this conversation about redefining words like terrorism, right? Because, you know, you, the story that you've just shared, you know, the, the part that I think disturbs probably you and I both the most is that this was done without any due process, right? Well, that and the fact that they're a Canadian company and, and this is the U.S. Department of Justice that's bringing the heat on and getting getting everything shut down. No due process, right? But in 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 war, that's that's generally pretty normal. There's no due process, right? It's it's all right. all rights are set aside. They all go to the wayside, and we do what we do to win the war. Um, and in, this was a, a really interesting shift that happened in America in, in the last fifty years, probably sometime around 1971. Um, cough, cough. And uh, <laughs> ever since then. You know, we, we saw the war on drugs. We saw the war yeah. on terror. We saw that we now we now we have the war on COVID. We've got the war against any and everything that we need the war to be against to justify whatever it is that the people in power want to do to fight whoever it is that they don't like. Um, dangerous but also times. the fact that they call it a war is bad because it's it allows them to use tools that only are available in wartime. Right. Um, you know, like, again, the government did this because there's a war on drugs it's like no there isn't there's a group of people that want to do drugs and there's a bit like there's a business there and what you need to do is think about protecting citizens and helping them recover from from drug problems making sure they're informed it's not a war it's not a war on poverty it's people that don't have jobs and money and education it's not a war on covid it's Mm -hmm. sick people it's not a war on you know like like saying calling it a war is it's it, you know it, it <laughs> it's like you know it's funny it's it, it's funny because it's like you know you know you know we're gonna wage a war on on uh, on illiteracy you know <laughs> like let's go let's get let's kill illiteracy it's like why are you saying war like why are you using the word war we've I mean, always been dr- at war with East Asia yeah <laughs> exactly I mean um it's 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 crazy uh w- one one example. Um, is um, a, a show that I love on Netflix, just called Narcos. Have you guys uh, have you seen it, Narcos? I, I don't watch much television, but I haven't heard the name. So Narcos is a phenomenal show. It's considered like one of the best shows out of Netflix. And the show, in simple terms, it's just following Pablo Escobar and the American mm. intervention in Colombia as the uh, cocaine trafficking um, uh, gets larger and larger as Pablo. Escobar gets bigger and bigger and more successful. And it's an amazingly interesting story because Pablo Escobar was a straight up gangster. He was insanely, it's, he's almost, he's such a villain that he's almost a hero. Like, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like he's mm-hmm. so villainous. He's, so in other words, when he, he, at one point he was so wealthy and so successful when he surrendered to the police in Colombia, he built his own prison, installed his own guards and made the pol- the government of Colombia sign mm-hmm. a thing saying they wouldn't come within five kilometers of his own prison that he built for himself. And then he escaped and he out of it, a tunnel, didn't he? <laughs> and then he escaped out of a tunnel. Like, 
It's like, can you believe that level of villainy where when you concede to the authorities, you're like, I am going to go to prison and prison is the castle I built over there with my own guards. And then he has like prostitutes and women coming into his castle. It's like, it's like, this guy's incredible. But as fun as that show was, and you see these Americans with like their, you know, their mustaches are like, all right, we're going to get in there. We're going to kill Escobar. He's a terrible man. And they show all the violence and they show all that. And you're watching and you're hoping the Americans can finally kill Escobar and they can finally do the thing. And there's action and it's a whole season. It's like, it's so intense. And then they kill Escobar and you're like, wow, this show is fucking crazy. And then you go on Wikipedia and you look up net cocaine export out of Colombia in the last 40 years. And do you want to know what's happened in terms of cocaine that's been exporting out of Colombia to the United States? I guess it's, been- it's gone way up. It's a straight up and to the right. Yeah, <laughs> That's right. all it is. You can't even tell where the show started and when the show ended. Like the Netflix, like there's no dent in the actual like uh, drug right. trafficking. So right. essentially what I'm saying is as much as I love this notion that we're going to stop drugs, all you did was get a bunch of people killed. Right. Like they did nothing. Like, they, like I, I love the show, but the show is very sad from a statistics perspective. Because when you look at it, it's like all that happened is a lot of people died. And you know what's interesting? America did little to actually attack the demand of cocaine, which was very wealthy business folk. Cocaine is an expensive drug. It was a party drug. Instead, they focused on you know, attacking you know, Colombians and, and, and working with the Colombian government to do all sorts of like pretty awful things and for no benefit. You know, it's like, a, like, it's just so much money was lost for like, you know, and, and anyways, I'm, I'm the, is this a t- tangent point, but this is the war on drugs and the government is waging on it. And our company is a legitimate company to take down. And the people that work at our company are, are evil, bad people that deserve to lose sleep in the, the last two months. And a lot, you know, lose their their work, lose their passion. They're just terrified of what's happening. That's a necessary collateral because drugs are so bad. And the funny thing is, the sad thing, not funny, is the the horrifying thing is, whatever drug dealers used encrypted phones or encrypted communication, they're not not using that anymore. Right. They're just going to use something else, or they're just going to use PGP, or they're just going to switch to whatever. And by the way, our company was legitimate. There were illegal companies doing what we we're doing that is actively selling to drug dealers, like actively meeting them. And the company was covert and there was underground and no taxes were paid. We were none of that. We were open, public, LinkedIn, all of us on LinkedIn, right? Mm-hmm. And yet they, they went after us and were necessary collateral. I mean, you know, it, it's very sad what's happening. Oh, yeah. It's like I said, the... Um whenever you create these laws, the only thing that you're doing is you're, you know, you're not stopping criminals with a, with a law in a book, right? The only thing that you're doing is disincentivizing law abiding citizens from participating in whatever that behavior is because they don't want to go to jail. Right. But the criminal doesn't care. He's already made the decision for the, 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 the career criminal. I mean, he's already made the decision that he would rather break the laws, right. And, and benefit in whatever ways he does. Um, and risk going to jail because he doesn't care, right? So every time you create these laws, all you're doing is preventing law-abiding citizens from participating in whatever activity or service or on and on down the list um, that the criminals are doing anyway. 
Yeah, and I'm 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 gonna kind of uh, um, leave it at one last point, which is that all the while, while there's a war on drugs and a war on poverty and a war on this and a war on that, what there isn't a war on in the United States and what the United States is complicit in and will there, you know, is the war on fraud and criminal behavior in the Mm -hmm. financial sector. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Financial crimes are crimes that only hurt people, only hurt, right? There's no, like when there is a Ponzi scheme or a pyramid scheme, it is not a productive thing. It is just money being stolen from people and moved somewhere else to other people. And Bernie Madoff actually is a good example of this. The United States government was spending all this time fighting marijuana deals in the United States, and they didn't fight a guy who had run a fraudulent hedge fund for 20 years where he didn't own a single stock. Hmm. He had one of the largest hedge funds in the world. He didn't own a single stock because it was a Ponzi. He was taking in money, paying off investors with other money. Mm -hmm. He did it for 20 years. Mm -hmm. People came to the government and said, look at this evidence. There's no way he's making 12 to 15% returns per year, every year, no matter what. That doesn't make sense. And the government didn't do anything for years. Started in 1999 when the government was alerted. In 2005, the SEC approached Bernie Madoff and did a thorough investigation and found out that he was legit. They found out that Bernie Madoff was, that was their conclusion. And then every person at the SEC left resumes with Bernie Madoff after the investigation. Okay. This is what's happening. And then in 2008, on December 13th or whatever it was, Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme collapsed after the housing crisis took a dip and 58 or 60 or 68, something, some billions of dollars evaporated. And people lost everything. Like good people just lost their retirement, completely gone. Mm. Now, if you want to talk about something to have a war against, you know, a kid smoking marijuana isn't the war you want to fight because a kid smoking marijuana, maybe he's not going to do as well on his spelling test or whatever, but that's this amount of harm. Financial fraud is so much worse, so much worse. And the government does nothing about these frauds. And it's left and right. Housing market crisis was an obvious financial fraud committed by credit agencies that were um, manipulating the risk associated with purchasing houses. What happened? Middle class and lower class people lost everything, lost their homes, Mm -hmm. everything completely ruined. Something so simple as just owning your own home was just completely distorted. And all, all of that excitement, all of that money, all of that hype, all of everything there, it was all lies because that wasn't, it, it was, it was being done by an, uh, a rigged financial or a poorly managed financial system. And yet, where is this war on fi- financial fraud? Right. War on financial fraud is an obvious thing to attack because financial fraud, again, it doesn't have people who benefit other than fraudsters. Like it's, it's so clear. I mean, with, with drugs, you know, the reason why drugs sell is because the takers of drugs like them. Look, I use drugs. Okay. I've, I've smoked pot, right? I've used other drugs. I drink caffeine. I drink alcohol. I use drugs. I don't do them because someone has a gun to my head and I'm a, I'm a target of the, of the drug companies. No, I like drugs. They're fun. They're enjoyable. They, they help me relax. Right. So when you make it war 
that my the liquor store gives me a, a, um, a bottle of beer, when that becomes war, it's funny because the liquor store benefits, I benefit, we're going on our merry way. And of course, there's a, a line where I can have an alcohol problem, I can have a marijuana problem, I can have a cigarette problem. And that's great. We can talk about how to make that better. But war isn't the right thing. Financial fraud is not like that. There's no benefit to financial fraud. There's no benefit to anyone. It is just moving numbers around to benefit the people that are on the inside. And Wait, don't get me started, man, because I could go on and on and on about all the things that the government does that go into creating those problems in the first place. Uh, yes. Uh, and, enabling... and then benefiting from them. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, the other thing I was just thinking about too, um, that we didn't really get on, but it's sort of tangential to you bringing up financial fraud is this idea of identity theft, which I find hilarious because, you know, all the time, like you'll, you'll get phone call from your bank or an email or whatever is like, oh, your account here or wherever has been compromised or someone is using your identity or someone's hacked into this or hacked into that. And all of this information is compromised. Well, cryptography should have solved this problem decades ago, right? But the problem is we have this extremely overbearing anti-money laundering and know your customer regulation because of the Bank Secrecy Act in 1970, cough, cough, um, mm -hmm. that requires an enormous amount of regulatory compliance from all these financial institutions. And they have to maintain databases filled with all of their customers' information, sometimes extremely personal information, like beyond just social security. You know, like they, they need to know everything about you to verify your identity, quote unquote. Well, cryptography solves that problem. You give, you, somebody has a private key they can sign a message and you know that that person with that private key is who they say they are because they have the private key and you don't even need to know their real name. As long as you know that they have that private key, this is how PGP works, right? But our governments don't allow us to solve problems in the financial system with PGP or with, you know, encrypted cryptography because they don't want you to have that kind of privacy in your financial life. Kind of all circles back together, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Uh, I, just, I just wanted to kind of flip that 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 around and say that, um, you know, even with this Bank Secrecy Act, how did Bernie Madoff run the largest hedge fund for 20 years and never have a single stock? Like if they have all this information, how do they do it? And here's how. When Bernie Madoff ran his hedge fund, he had every month one to two percent returns. That's what was on paper. Twelve to 15 percent per year. He was giving every year. 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003, 2004, and so forth. And what he did was very smart. And this is what fraudsters and Ponzi schemes and what happens in finance. He realized in order for him to survive, he needs others to profit as well. So he made his hedge fund take no cut, no commission, no yearly uh, percentage. Typically hedge funds work on a 110, 220 model, like 1% per year, of gross 10% of profits. He did none of that. He was arguing that he made something on top. And what that meant was that all the banks that weren't Bernie Madoff could buy into the fund, into their fund, so that their fund now does really well. Mm -hmm. And they could sell that fund because all these other bankers were like, well, look, Bernie Madoff is doing so well. You know, how do we, what, what should we do? How do we keep well, the this honor, going? Keep this going. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, as long as we can do well as well. There's, let's just keep everything quiet. So Bernie Madoff had this funny thing where he would tell people like, you can join, but you can't ask any questions <laughs> and you can't know anything. Right. And so every bank in America held hands in secrecy 
Like talk about Bank Secrecy Act. This is Bank Secrecy Act. Every bank in America d- lied and then had a, a hedge fund front. Like they called it something else, but behind it, it was mostly made off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and then they, he lost everyone's money. And where is the government? Like, like, like where is the government? And, um, and, and all those and, and, organizations and people that made all that money at the expense of all the people at the bottom of the pyramid, did they pay back all of those individuals that lost no. their life savings? No. And they all get, get a cut, a 120 cut or a 110 cut. And it's, it's, it blows my mind. And it's so egregious. It's like, it, I, I, I lose my mind when I, when I think about that case, because it, it makes me lose hope in the system. But what's worse is that how do we have time to stop and frisk anyone? for cigarettes, for marijuana or cigarettes or whatever, when this is, when this is going on, right? Like let's stop everything that's happening against people trying to, to like move LSD or, or tabs of acid or whatever, like stop all of that and focus on pure robbery, like a gross, large, massive scale robbery against everyone, you know? And instead I have to deal with the fact that, you know, that allegedly our company was, was, you know, we're, we're the bad guys in a drug war. And so that, you know, like, like it, it's, it's incredible. Um, because, um, I think that, you know, when I, when I look at the cryptocurrency space, I see some other, you know, fraudsters and some pretty shady things going on. And I wish the government would step in and, and right wrongs, but they're, they don't, they care only about power and self-interest and they'll only step in for taxes. That's mm-hmm. why the government will step in. Mm-hmm. Not when it actually hurts citizens, when it hurts profit. And it's, it's, it's awful. It's, it's really, um, it's really upset. Okay. Let's, let's maybe say something positive before we, uh, I don't know, something, um, Bitcoin exists. Yeah, so, That's a thing. Yeah. Bitcoin exists, I guess. So, yeah. Um, I don't know, man. I, I I'm optimistic. Uh, I really am. I, I tend to think, that human ingenuity is the engine that drives society forward, right? And up and to the right, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, while, while today things tend to be a bit discouraging and, and it feels like, it's like, man, we just keep losing. Um, I, I'm optimistic. I, I think that this is kind of just the way it has to go. And I think more people are waking up to the world is not what they were taught in the fairy tale history textbooks growing up. And I think more and more people are, are waking up, you know, as, as more and more of their freedoms and and things are sort of being clawed away from them. They're, they're taking a step back and saying, Hey, like, this is not okay. Like, I'm not okay with this. I don't like this. I don't want this. And more, more and more people are taking a stand to fight against it. And, and I, I do, I see the world in a better place in 20 years than it is today. And, and I really do believe that. Uh, because of people like yourself, you know, fighting the good fight out there, doing doing what what they know is right based on their first principles. Yeah, and you know, I I I, I want to be hopeful as well. I think that there are enough people doing the right thing. Um, and it it uh, it, uh, it really is true that for evil to win, it's not for bad people to do bad things. It's for good people to not stand up um, against bad people. It really does require that enough. Um, people take a stand. It's impossible to take a stand against everything. But if you're a listener, um, you know, just think about what you're taking a stand for in life. You don't have infinite energy. Um, but for the things that you do stand for, it's important to, uh, to, to, you know, to, to make a difference and every difference counts. Like, like there's no, um, you know, I think like what you're doing, this podcast, like opening discussions, having people 
give the give the right to, to share a story like that's a, an amazing impact um and it's part of the bigger picture because without that you know like snowden isn't interesting without the journalism without the views without the videos without the the tapes and mm. so we, we need that as well mm. um and we need uh you know and you're going to be in software and that's great too and so I'm, I'm very thankful that you had me on man this was this was awesome of you thanks for reaching mm. out bud yeah absolutely all right guys welcome back thanks so much for listening to the show i hope you enjoyed that conversation with aviv i thought it was a really good one don't forget, you can listen to all of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber episodes at BitcoinEchoChamber.com, or you can find us on pretty much most of your favorite podcasting services, whether that be Spotify or iTunes or Stitcher. We're on just about all of them. Anchor distributes to a whole bunch of different platforms, so you should be able to find us. There's also an RSS feed on the website, BitcoinEchoChamber.com. Also, you can reach out to me, or if you need to get in contact with Ben as well, just hit up BitcoinEchoChamber at gmail.com. Or you can reach out to us on Twitter at HeavilyArmC, that's me, HeavilyArmClown, or MrCoolBP is Ben. Hope to see you guys in the Miami conference, Miami Bitcoin 2021 conference. Ben and I will be speaking on WTF Happened in 1971, so if you're going, make sure and hit us up, make sure and say come say hi, we'd love to talk to you guys. But as always, any questions, comments about the episode, if you just want to chat, feel free to reach out. See you guys in the next one.